Hey everybody and welcome to another episode of Wings for Breakfast, our twice-weekly Red Wings podcast here on The Athletic. I'm Max Boltman, with me as always is Prashant Iyer, and today we've got a really fun guest on the show, Scott Wheeler, one of our great prospect writers here on The Athletic. Scott, how you doing? I'm doing well, how are you guys? Doing good, how's, how's life up there? Yeah, it's been good. I mean, we were talking about it before I, we hopped on the call here, but uh, everything has been super busy for me. I expected things to sort of slow down in the era of coronavirus, but I found that in terms of getting these kids on the phone and their coaches on the phone, that everybody's got a lot of spare time on their hands, and that has kept me busy. And then obviously sort of digging in on video work to put the final touches on my final top 100 has been a lot of fun and a lot of work, so... Um, no shortage of things to do. It's been nice to have my wife working from home for a change as well, so spending more time with her and um, just trying to sort of stay safe here. Well, let's start with, with sort of your rankings. I know uh, I'm not going to ask you to spoil them. I'm sure that the, the, the finalist is coming relatively soon, but we did want to get into a little bit today. It's part of your process, and I know you do great pieces semi-regularly, kind of an update to, to your um kind of your, your scouting guide of how, of how to scout, but let's talk a little bit about kind of how you formulate your ranks and tiers. What are you looking for? What's kind of your, your methodology there? Oh, uh, there's a lot. It's changed a lot over the years too. I, I've, this is now my seventh sort of full season um, doing this as, as, as my job in one form or the other. And, um, but it's, it's, this was really the first year where it was my only focus for the first couple of years that I was doing this at, at sort of future considerations in McKean's hockey. I, um, I was also juggling it with, with finishing up my university degree and finishing up journalism school and, and that kind of thing. And then early on when I started at the athletic, I, my role expanded and I was able to sort of really, really dig in. Um, but, but I was also covering the, as you know, I was also covering the Leafs for, for a couple of years there. So my focus was always really kind of split until the last year and a half when everything began to change and, and I was sort of, uh, moved into this new role at the athletic, um, and as such, my the way I do my job has changed. I, I used to rely a little bit more heavily on uh, the sort of video side of things, particularly when I was um, still sort of finishing up university. I was lucky to go to school in Ottawa where I had both Gatineau and Ottawa as sort of access points to two of the major junior leagues within 10 minutes. So that, that was a huge blessing. But uh, these days, I mean, I, uh, I try to get to all of the major events, but uh, in terms of the actual process... It has become more of a blend of, of sort of being in the rink and seeing these kids play and spending as much of my year traveling as I can and then also finding time to sort of dig in on video. And they both certainly have their advantages and their disadvantages. Um, I find when I'm at the rink, you you get a better sense of the full scope of the ice and you can get a better sense of, of where players fit in in terms of structure and systems and the way that they're deployed on the ice and that kind of thing versus on video, you can really dig in and isolate the skills I find. Uh, I love being able to sort of pause video and, and sort of look back at a play that a player made because if some of that can get lost. You can you can lose some of the detail when you're in the rink and things are moving as fast as they move in today's game. So both certainly have their advantages and their disadvantages. And then to sort of round out my process, I try to just talk to as many people as possible. There's three, four hundred kids in every draft class that are probably worth watching. And quite frankly, I don't have the time, despite this being my full-time job, to see all of those kids play. So I normally see 175, 200 kids and do my best to to sort of get multiple viewings of all those kids. There are certain leagues that are much harder than others. I, I really struggle to get some of the high school kids in the United States uh, in particular. So I rely on their coaches and their, and their agents and other scouts for some of those kids. And 
Um, the truth is, at the end of the day, it's not a it, it's it's not a perfect science. I get to the end of the year and I make mistakes, and I spend hundreds and hundreds of hours watching these kids and pouring over the data and trying to sort of contextualize them within their line mates and their teams. And uh, the big thing that I always tell people is that I, I think the parity of the NHL doesn't exist anywhere else in the hockey world, and that can kind of get lost when people get to the yeah. end of the year and they and they pour over the stats and they say, okay, this kid with a point per game clip and this kid with 0.75 points per game, the the one player must be better than the other. And, and that's just not often the case, just given the lopsidedness at these pro and junior and college levels in terms of one team's strengths to the next team's weaknesses and all of that. So it, it's a lot. There's, there's no sort of perfect science. I make a lot of mistakes in the work that I do. Um, but just trying to sort of do my best to contextualize these kids, to talk to as many people as possible, and then to sort of blend some of the video work that I do with getting to see these kids in person, which I think is also really important. Awesome. Well, you do great work, and so um, obviously uh, what you're doing is working. Uh, I also think you, you might be one of the only, probably the only, I assume, prospect analysts out there who has spent a week with a potential top five pick living with Marco <laughs> Rossi last year. Uh, what's it kind of been like watching as he went from, I, mean, I know he was a good prospect then, but but now to, to being in solidly kind of in that top ten for this year's draft class? Yeah, it's been a lot of fun to watch him. It, it, you, it, with the work I do, because I do some, sort of the storytelling as well as the analysis side of things, when I get caught up in the storytelling, it can be easy to sort of fall in love with these kids, quote unquote. Like it can, uh, I, I just, I'm, I'm endeared by Marco Rossi. I'm endeared yeah. by his work ethic and the kind of person he is. And I know firsthand that he's just a machine and that he lives, eats and breathes this and, um, so, so that part of it, I have to try and keep in the back of my mind when I'm also evaluating him because there's, there's probably a bit of a bias that gets created there. Um, but I also think it helped to inform how high I was on him throughout the year and how bullish I was on some of his qualities. And, um, I, I may certainly have an intimate knowledge with how sort of big he is just spending so much time with him. I think one of the, the sort of sort of lazy, if you will, uh, descriptors that often get thrown out there with Marco is that at five foot nine and the fact that he plays center, oh, maybe he'll have to play wing at the next level and that kind of thing we've often heard about him this year. And I think when you spend time with him and you see him, he is huge. Like he's, he's massive. He's built like a truck and that, that shows certainly on the ice. He players just bounce off of him out there. Um, but I think just spending so much time with him really helped me understand that he is a, a sort of physical specimen. He's not a, a sort of skinny five foot nine. Um, so that certainly helped. And, and it's just been a ton of fun to watch him because he's just one of those kids who's a, a wonderful kid. I spend a lot of time with most of these players and you can tell pretty quickly in dealing with them, uh, which players are, are, are sort of the, the sort of cocky hockey player that you hear about and which players have a sort of, humane down-to-earth quality to them um and and i really appreciate that about marco and uh so it's been it's just been a lot of fun he had a obviously had a magnificent season a brilliant season and he's one of those kids uh there's normally three or four kids every year who's ready to make the jump and he's one of those kids who i think is going to play in the nhl next year so it's going to be fun to see him adjust sort of immediately to that pro game Scott, uh, you're you're only making me love Marco Rossi even more because he's a guy that I like to look at, you know, more so from a numbers standpoint, and he's been mm. absolutely off the charts. And, and actually, it's funny you, you mentioned just how well built he is because Max and I had a, a conversation a few weeks back where I was explaining to him 
what Martin St. Louis looked like with his thighs and just how big he was um, from a lower body standpoint. And and it's kind of encouraging that Rossi's built similarly in that he's got a lot of that lower body strength, that core strength that ultimately makes a lot of these smaller guys successful. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit and kind of stick in the OHL to a certain extent. It was a great year uh, in the OHL, kind of rebounding a little bit from last year. And one of the guys who's been towards the top of the conversation is Quentin Byfield. And I think at times throughout the year, there's been a lot of conversation about how close is Quentin Byfield really to Alexi Lafreniere? Is it really a 1A, 1B? Is it a true 1-2? I know that's kind of fluctuated Throughout the season, I kind of wanted to get your take on where you think Byfield stacks up to Lafreniere because now as we're getting closer and closer to the draft, you're starting to see people actually move Byfield further away as opposed to closer up to. Yeah, I think there has definitely been some distancing this year. Uh, for me, Alexi was the clear-cut guy from day one, but I think this year just continued to reaffirm that that there was a pretty pronounced gap between him and the field. Um this isn't sort of a, a sort of Connor McDavid gap between Mitch Marner and, and Dylan Strom, um, but it's it's certainly a, a, a pronounced pronounced gap. Um, and then I think at, at the on the flip side though, uh, that that isn't to say that Quinton didn't have an an excellent year and continue to sort of establish himself as the number two guy in this draft class. I, I really do think that he did. Um, uh, there has been some talk in scouting circles about whether Tim Stutzla is is sort of closing the gap and whether there's a conversation now about who will go second overall and, and that kind of thing. For me, um, I, I finished my top, final top 100, which will be out in a couple of weeks. I finished it five or six days ago, and um, it's it, it's still Quentin at number two for me. And um, I, I think that He's just too good and too talented, and his skating has come too far uh, that at, at his size, you just can't pass on him relative to some of those other kids. And I've been vocal about how I think the top, my top eight in this draft are really a, a sort of top four or five in most drafts. They're they're all that talented, and it speaks to how good Quinton is and how good he 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 sort of might become at his ceiling that he's still maybe a slight cut above those other kids. So. Um, I, I think the sky's the limit. I mean, my, my big concern, I watched him when he was 15 years old. I did a story on him for The Athletic um, when he was playing for the York Simcoe Express in his minor midget AAA year. And back then, I, I watched a lot of him and spent a lot of time with him that year. And the big thing for me was I was concerned at the sort of AAA minor hockey level that he was just too big and too strong and that it, it wasn't his talent that was shining through and dominating those kids. And once he started to do that at the OHL level, especially because he's a, one of the younger players in this draft class, um, uh, I was sold at that point. And, and my concerns with his skating, which, which were, was probably his big weakness when he was 15 years old, are completely gone. And I would say it's arguably a strength of his game through the middle of the ice now. He can really push pace. So, um, yeah, they're both great players, but I, I do think it's a clear one-two at this point for me. And then there's another sort of tier below that of of five or six guys. Where you mentioned that Rossi, you think would transition to the NHL next year? Uh, do you think Byfield's kind of in that same level of NHL readiness, or do you think he's a guy that would ultimately come back um, to the OHL next year? That's a tough one for me because normally you don't see a, a sort of second overall pick go back. Normally, if there's two or three kids that 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 make it out of every draft class, it's 
normally those those number ones and those number twos and then maybe one other kid in that top 10 range who impresses in camp and I think we could see it go the other direction with Byfield I would not be surprised quite frankly if he went back to the OHL next year um uh, this summer will certainly be big for him and I'm sure whichever team drafts him is going to give him a long look in camp and give him every opportunity to impress and sort of show in exhibition games that he can keep up and make plays at this sort of NHL level and um, I certainly think he's talented enough to be able to play in the NHL next year. It's not a question of whether he's good enough. Um, I, I just think he, 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 there is a sort of raw element to his game that still needs to be refined. We still haven't seen him put up this sort of, and he would have put up a hundred points if he's, if he were sort of played the full season this year, but we still haven't seen him really, really control the OHL game on a sort of game to game level in the same way that a Lafreniere or a Marco Rossi did this year. Um, and I just think he, he, he's still got room to get stronger. He could still take on a bigger role at the World Juniors. There, there will be arguments to be made in either direction, but I wouldn't be surprised if, if Quinton went back to Sudbury next year. One of the things that I think is most interesting when the, whenever there's kind of a cluster of, of prospects, and especially near the top of the draft, is you can sometimes kind of make arguments in multiple directions for guys. And so with that in mind, I won't ask you to rank these guys. I do want to keep some suspense for your rankings. But what would what would you say would be kind of the – if a team takes this guy at number three or four overall, they're probably doing it for this reason. And those four guys are Lucas Raymond, Marco Rossi, Alex Holtz, and Tim Stutzel. Oh, um that's a good question. I, I think in Rossi, you're, you're looking of, of those four players, you're looking at the most well-rounded player of the bunch. Rossi's the kind of player who's going to be able to have a huge impact at both ends of the ice. He's not only going to be one of your most talented offensive players, but he's also an absolute monster on draws, like the, the kind of player who is going to challenge to win 54 or 55% of his draws at the NHL level. He can penalty kill. He can play late defensive zone situations. He can play in any kind of matchup you want him to play in. Um, and there's just a comfort level in a player like Rossi. He may not drive results in terms of putting up the sort of gaudy uh, production that we see in, in some of those other kids that you listed. Like he may not be the kind of player who puts up 80 or 90 points in a season, but he's going to do other things sort of all in all three zones that will potentially make him the best player of that bunch regardless. Um, so I think that's what you're looking at, Rossi. You're looking at a player who can step in immediately. Um, and I just think his, he's, he's got one of the higher floors of that group. Uh, Stutzla is is the kid that you you your argument would be made on on sort of the dynamic quality of his speed and his playmaking ability. I don't think he's going to score a ton of goals at the NHL level, but his ability to play in transition is unmatched in this draft class. Um, and the game, increasingly, I think teams believe is is trending that way to that sort of track meet back and forth that Tim is is so well built for. So I think that's the argument for Tim. And then Holtz, the I mean, the easy argument is that he's the best, probably going to be the best scorer in the draft. Um, and I think there's often a sort of underrated quality to his playmaking, frankly, because he's such a great shooter uh, that gets lost. I think he's actually uh, sees the ice quite well and, and can make a lot of plays to involve his line mates. So I think if a team were to take Holtz third or fourth overall in that kind of a range, they would probably be doing it because they've already got um, players who have a, a sort of dynamic playmaking quality and they're looking for a, a kid who can impact the game in a different way like I, I would look at a team like Anaheim who's who's got a Trevor Zegris and Holtz would seem to be a natural fit with that kind of a player so so that would be your argument there and then Raymond is is kind of the boomer bust of those players I, I think he probably has the lowest floor but he might also have the highest ceiling and there's just a 
a flair to his game that you love. He, he's, he, he's got that sort of Mitch Marner comparison that always gets thrown out there. But I, I, and as much as I don't like comparisons, I, I think it's, it's honestly a fair kind of comparison. Mitch wasn't a great skater at the same age. Lucas isn't the greatest skater in the world. But when the puck's on his stick, he sees the ice so well. He, you, you'll never sort of lack effort in his game away from the puck. Um, and, and there's certainly going to be that boomer bust swing that a team gets to a point where if Raymond's available at, at sort of five, six, seven, eight in the draft, it'll be hard to pass up on him just because of the pure upside in his game. And it might take him a little bit longer to get there, but Lucas is a kid who who just has that sort of that touch with the puck that every team wants in a sort of top line forward. Yeah. He seems like he's pretty hard on like recovering pucks back too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's, he's, he's one of those kids who's always moving, always chasing and hunting. And um, Tim and, and Alexander don't really have that quality to their game. Despite Tim's speed, he, he tends to kind of survey the ice and, and try to get into pockets to intercept passes and that kind of thing. Whereas, Raymond, as soon as the puck's off his stick, he's he's just hunched over his his feet. He's got a little bit of a weird quality to his stride, and, and he looks like he's kind of hunting the puck all the time. Yeah, that's great to hear. Um, and, you know, I think any team that really picks in the top five is going to be lucky, like you said. I mean, it's really mm-hmm. a, a top eight that resembles guys who would usually go in the top four in a lot of drafts. So a lot of skill, a lot of talent, but shifting gears a little bit, I want to kind of bring up one of the more controversial players uh, for this year's draft, and it's simply only a controversy because he's a goaltender, and it's Yaroslav Askarov. And, you know, throughout the year, I think a lot of people have tabbed him as uh, kind of one of the best goalie prospects that come that has come out, really, in the last several years. And, and I'm kind of curious, what do you... What are you looking for when you're scouting a goaltender? And then as much as you hate comparisons, where does he kind of stack up from a prospect in, in terms of Spencer Knight, a guy who went in the top half of the first round last year? Right. Um, well, it's certainly very hard. I, I I try to be upfront about the way that I evaluate goalies to say that I am way more confident at all times in my ability to evaluate and identify talent in forwards and defensemen than I am in goalies. It is very hard, and we hear the term voodoo get thrown around, but it's true. It's it's an extremely challenging unless you've really played the position at a high level. Um, I would imagine it's it's a it's a tough sort of evaluation tool for for any scout um but with askarov and in terms of what i look for i I would say that the two big things i look for in in today's goalies are well three big things maybe the first is is you've got to be able to control your rebounds that's one of the first things that you see in a goalie goalies can stay square to a shot they can be athletic and they still don't have that sort of swallowing quality or that ability to push tough pucks into the corner and away from trouble and you quickly see, especially in these young kids, when they're a little bit hectic in their net, you quickly see a lot of pucks that are that get kicked back out into the slot. And even if those don't result in goals against, if you do that at the NHL level, you're going to get burned almost every time. So that's a big thing that I think a lot of goalies, uh, sort of the 17, 18-year-old age group, really struggle with. Um, they're just their movements aren't condensed and compact enough, and and the result is just a lot of pucks that get pushed back out into dangerous spots on the ice. Um, 
and then the other two things are a a goalie needs to be able to stay center. Um, you know, a lot of goalies that 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 are that age, that are that seventeen eighteen age group, they they swim in their net. And and if you're swimming against junior hockey league players, even if you're able to make those big recovery saves, um, again, that's just not a quality that I think tends to work well at the NHL level. Certainly, there are a couple of NHL goalies that come to mind. Jonathan Quick swims in his net. Curtis McElhaney swims in his net. Um, and, and they've made careers out of it. Um, certainly, Braden Holtby can, can get caught in his net a little bit, sort of pushing off too aggressively and that kind of thing, and is one of the best goal has been one of the best goalies of his generation. But I think those players nowadays tend to be the, the, the sort of exception rather than the norm. I think a lot of the best goalies in the league today, whether it's Connor Hellebuck or uh, Devin Dubnik for a long time, have excelled by sort of really just being compact in their net. Um, and then the third thing is, is that ability to make those, those really tough saves. I think that's what separates a goalie like Askarov from a lot of other goalies is sure he, he's got the athleticism and the explosiveness to go post to post and make some really difficult saves, but he's still compact in, when he's doing that. Like he, he, he can be explosive in his net without pushing too, too far or without being overly aggressive on his lines or, that kind of a thing. So I think those are the three things that I look for. And then Askarov kind of checks all of those boxes. He's extremely athletic. He makes a lot of very difficult saves that other goalies his age don't make. Um, but he's also got that sort of compact quality to him uh, to be able to sort of stay center and swallow those rebounds and sort of keep everything in his chest. So um, th- that that's that's ultimately what has sold me on Askarov. And then ultimately, as with any other player, I, l- I look at the data and the track record and Askarov uh, just has it. I mean, it can be t- one of the tough things with goalies is that they can spend a lot of their, their sort of 16, 17-year-old seasons at lower levels and then you've basically just got their draft year to judge them on versus defensemen and forwards where you often have two or three years of, of high-level pl- hockey to, to sort of contextualize them against. And Askarov, I mean, we all know, but Askarov's been playing above his age group for his entire life, and he's always been putting up numbers equivalent to players who are sort of top prospects who are two or three years older than him. And he's done that not only internationally, but also domestically in the MHL and, and obviously recently in the KHL and the VHL this season. So... Um, that, that's sort of what sold me on Askarov. I still don't think he's a top 10 pick in this draft. Um, I've, I've said that all along. Um, but he's certainly the kind of goalie that should be taken in the sort of top 20 range. Um, and, and once you get out of those sort of eight or nine prospects that I talked about, he's, he's right in that next, that next tier of prospects for me. Um, there's always risk when you take a goalie and then, uh, he has just done enough to, to sort of sell me. So I, 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 I would be comfortable taking that risk. Um, and, and obviously you touched on, on Knight. I, I would say Askarov's a better goalie than Knight. I believed a year ago, probably wrongly, quite frankly, that Knight should have been a, a late first rather than the 12th overall pick, like, like the Panthers sort of took that plunge on. But, uh, Knight obviously followed that up with an excellent, excellent, freshman year in college as one of the best goalies in it in sort of division one NCAA hockey. So I think more and more now that I was a little bit too low on night, but I would still say that Askarov is, is the better prospect of the two. He's, he illustrates though, something you were talking about a little bit ago about team context where, you know, I, I went to USA hockey arena a few times last year and, you know, not only is he on an incredible team that has the puck all the time, he, he's 
all the shots he he does face seem to be breakaways because they all have to come in transitions. He strikes <laughs> me as a guy who would have been like kind of case in point about the struggles of of scouting. Yes, without question, that's an excellent example. The Black Tux believes every groom deserves a better experience when it comes to finding formal wear, a suit or a tuxedo, for their big day. Did you know the Black Tux was actually started by two guys who had one of the worst tuxedo fittings you could imagine? Turns out they aren't alone in this frustration. Just listen to these one-star reviews from competitor tux shops that shall not be named. Go elsewhere. This place is pretty terrible. Unless you're dressing like your grandpa for Halloween. We felt weird buying a suit from somebody so unhappy. We were afraid his bad vibes might follow us to our wedding day, so we left. What I love about the Black Tux is that they have an easy online ordering process that brings you your suit or tuxedo straight to you. Just pick a style at theblacktux.com and request a free home try-on so you can feel the fit and quality before you commit. And if online isn't your style, the Black Tux has showrooms all over the country where you can find your fit and plan your look. From there, they'll ship your order two weeks before your wedding so you can check it one last time. Talk about commitment. Whether you're buying your outfit or looking to rent, you won't find a formal wear experience or designs like the ones you'll find at the Black Tux. If you want your wedding to be remembered for the right reasons, order your suit or tuxedo at theblacktux.com and enjoy 10% off with code WINGS. That's theblacktux.com, code WINGS, for 10% off your purchase. The Black Tux, formal wear for the moment. Um, I do want to get into kind of some broader scouting topics in general, and something Prashant and I debate all the time is we text about various prospects who we have, you know, watched the very bare bones video <laughs> available on the internet of, uh, is like, what what are things that scouts kind of, in your mind, can do better to improve, maybe it's not even like scouts individually per se, but like, what could improve scouting and prospect analysis, whether it's for, you know, kind of the um, the, the, the nitty gritty or just on a broad level? Uh, um, well, first of all, from an exterior standpoint, I would love to have more data on some of these kids, just simple things like time on ice data for, for junior hockey players in Canada would be, would be huge for my, for what I do. It makes a huge difference because it is available for the SHL and the KHL and Liga where not only time on ice data is available for the prospects that, that play in those leagues, but possession numbers are now available. So they track Corsi and PDO and um, the time on ice is broken down by situation. And all of those things are now available in, in many of the leagues in across Europe, but they aren't available, for example, in the NCAA or uh, in the CHL. And, and that is a huge blind spot, I think. I think a lot of mistakes happen because we don't have the proper context on the player and you can come away from a game thinking Dallas Stars prospect Thomas Harley must have played 40 minutes out there because it seemed like he was always on the ice when in reality he only played 18 and he just caught your eye a little bit more than the other kids so uh, I, I think just having more context uh, on some of these kids would go a long way and I think scouts even without having that context would would do well to um, rely mo- a little bit more on on sort of data and production than they do um, I, I, that isn't to say that seeing these kids play isn't important because it is so, 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 so important to understanding what skills make them good and what differentiates between a good junior player and a good professional hockey league player. So, um, that's a bit, you, you still have to get in the rings. You still have to update those viewings because these kids are changing so much. A, a kid's viewing, if you watch a kid in October and then don't watch him again until May, well, there's a lot that's happened in that time. These kids, their brains, their bodies, everything about their role on their team and their ice time has changed in that period. So I think repeated viewings is very important, but I do think that there are still 
sort of analytic statistic darlings every year that slip further than they should. And I think that's in large part because scouts are relying too much on what they've seen in a player at the rink and not enough on the context of their production within their team or within their league. Um, that particularly for forwards, I'm less concerned with production these days for defensemen, but uh, particularly with forwards, every year there are kids who just rack up points and because there was a hitch in their stride or they didn't shoot the puck enough when when certain scouts were watching them, they they, they slide further than they should. Um, the, I mean, there's examples every year. Arthur Kaliev is an excellent example from last year's draft. There had just been this perception among scouts who'd been in the rink watching him play so much that he didn't work hard and that he was going to be a liability defensively and that he couldn't skate. And while there are certainly truths to all of those things and he flies by the puck way too much to this day and there are problems ongoing in his game, there's no reason a kid who scored 50 goals in his draft year shouldn't be a first round pick. And and that's regardless of some of the other concerns that you have about him. So um, I, I think that's is still the next frontier for scouting is, is beginning to get away from relying too, too heavily on the qualities that you see in a player when you're watching them play, there has to be a balance. The teams that do it really well, when I look at the, the sort of teams that draft well, there, there's a player type and the player type is certainly there's a stylistic quality. Players need to be able to play with speed and they need to be able to play in traffic. But when I look at the way that the Carolina Hurricanes have drafted in recent years or the way that the Los Angeles Kings have drafted in recent years, those are probably the teams that I think have drafted the best and they draft well because they draft players who also produce and players who in the context of their teams or relative to their age have always produced. Um, and, and I think that can't get uh, sort of enough focus still in today's NHL in, in the way that scouts are evaluating and the, and the big mistakes that happen at the draft with the kids who, who regularly fall for one reason or another. How much did Prashanth uh, pay you to say that? And how did he get you the script? So fast? <laughs> It's yeah. music to my ears. Is there anything that, that you find, this is a debate we have fairly often, uh, that, that you think, I mean, I, I think you probably touched on it a little bit there, but is is kind of the more overrated, um, the, the, the quality, that whether it's the scouts or just kind of us and the public, because God knows the public has taken on a scouting mind of its own in recent years, really overrate in, in uh, analysis? Oh, uh, that's a tough one for me because I think as much as I was just critical of the way that, that scouts, um, in today's NHL tend to make mistakes by relying a little bit too much on what they see at the rink, I think it has gone the other direction in the public sphere. Um, I, I think, uh, and I don't want to be too critical of everyone because uh, I make oh. these mistakes all the time myself as well, but I, I think the, the, in the public sphere analysis of the draft, the group think is a major problem. Um, we, we constantly see among both the public facing scouting services and then among very smart people that do it independently, we see the names, the same names start to pop up. And I think that's because everybody follows each other on Twitter and everybody doesn't have the time to watch all of these kids. And there are a lot of people that do this in the public sphere who are juggling full-time jobs and, they can hear a name and, and hearing that name is enough reason to go out and do some research on that player. And then we start to hear the same kind of conversations happen about a lot of players. And I think mistakes are often made by relying a little bit too much on some of the data that's available to us and relying a little bit too much on uh, the production that we see out of a player. Um, so I think it's, I don't know, it's tough. It, there's a balancing act for sure. I think it can go both ways. And um, 
that isn't to say anybody's got it all figured out because certainly nobody does. But I do think that that groupthink and sort of an over reliance on data in the public sphere has has also begun to happen. Yeah, no, and it's understood that uh, you know these are not uh, harsh blows being levied. We're, we're we're putting you on the spot a little bit, but because I think it's always worth worth a little little bit of reflection in that sense. So uh, no worries on that front. Yeah, it's kind of funny you you mention it like that, Scott, because you know Max alluded to us having that debate and. And for me, like whenever I see the different people kind of making comments on players, the one thing that always uh, I nitpick Max about is I go, how how do you guys objectively place sk- skating on a spectrum? Because uh, to me, that's the thing that's always come across as, again, being someone who doesn't evaluate players um, by video more than just me watching and thinking, hey, that player looks good. How, how do you guys put skating on a spectrum? Because that's the thing that's just never made a lot of sense to me. Yeah, exactly. And and skating is not, I mean, I've had this, probably had this conversation with Max before privately, but skating is not just about top speed and about being able to blow by a guy wide anymore. Skating is so much more than that. And you can't, that's an, it's one of just one of those things that you can't get a sense for until you see a player and i think one of the in in terms of that group think we see in the in the sort of public prospect sphere is that how many 5 foot 7 5 foot 8 5 foot 9 guys have we heard about that have produced massive numbers in junior and whether that's in SM Liga in Finland or Super League in Sweden or in the CHL here. And every year we hear about dozens of these kids as this kid's going to be the sleeper and this kid's going to make it and this kid's going to surprise everyone. And uh, I think skating is, is the big thing that's the differentiator for those smaller players. It is easy if you're small and talented to produce in some of those leagues. Uh, it, it just comes naturally to some of those kids. But not every kid that's that size can make it. And we know that even as the NHL, for example, is getting smaller and smaller and smaller, and smaller players, frankly, tend to skew a lot higher on my board than than with many NHL scouts that I talk to. But um, it's still very hard, and I think skating is the big thing that 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 really still can't be measured. Um, when I look at this draft and I look at, at, at players like Casper Simon Teibel and uh, Zion Nybeck and, and some of these kids who get thrown around, um, I'm comfortable being higher on a player like Nybeck because he can adjust his, his sort of speed in traffic. And I think that increasingly has become the most valuable tool is not the ability to sort of really get going and fly. I think a lot of kids actually run into problems that way. I, I look at Jake Vertanen as a player who took a long time for him to learn that just getting to top speed all the time isn't going to work. And the McLeod brothers are certainly a, sort of examples of that. Kasperi Kapanen is still trying to figure out how to make plays at top speed instead of forcing himself into the corner because he's just burned wide every time. So uh, it, it's complicated, but I think increasingly what I look for, particularly in smaller players in projecting those kids who put up those outstanding numbers at their junior levels in terms of differentiating the ones who are going to make it from the ones who aren't is the ability to play at multiple tempos in traffic and to adjust speed from a standstill. It, it, it It's all happening in, in the sort of blink of an eye these days. Um, and sort of being able to burn wide, I think, is less, much less valuable than that ability to uh, sort of go from zero to fifty rather than zero to one hundred. Um, so, so that's one of the big things that I look for. And again, that's one of those things that just cannot be. It it can't really be quantified. Um, I would I would love if it could be, but it it just can't. So you you have to do your best to 
identify the kids whose whose skating is a real strength because you cannot be small and slow and have to stick handle past the same guy five times to make a play at the NHL level. It's just not an option for players these days. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. I think it's it's interesting because, uh, you know, part of me always wonders how much the bigger ice in Europe kind of allows mm. some of those smaller players to to use that burn-wide tactic. And, and then as they shift their game to a smaller ice that's, uh, that's you know, not as wide, that that kind of impacts their ability to translate or transition. It's, it's always been an interesting thought for me, um, you know, when it comes to evaluating those smaller players. But, you know, like you said, you – You've kind of consistently been higher on them and guys like Gushin and, and, uh, you know, Simon Tybal and Nybeck and other smaller kids that produce really well. So, you know, we'll kind of see it, but all those guys potentially, uh, will be available, you know, maybe in the early part of the second round, maybe late part of the first. I think if you're a Wings fan sitting at the top of the second round, what would be the most realistic but dream scenario in terms of guys you'd be able to pick out of? Oh, um, I, I think there are a few. Um, I look at a few of the sort of defensemen as well. Certainly Nybeck will be available there. He's not going to get picked in the first round. And I think whichever team takes a chance on him um, in the sort of second or third round will be will be smart to have done so. He's one of those kids where even if he doesn't work out, I'm not too worried about uh, being wrong about him in the long term, just because there's obviously huge risk in picking a kid that's five foot seven. Like there just is. He, he there's a boomer bust quality to those kids. It's one thing to be a five foot nine forward in the NHL today, where that's increasingly possible. It's still you can count on one hand the number of players that are as small as, as Zion is. So um, it's it's going to be a tough battle for him. He's going to have to get lucky with coaches that trust him and coaches that put him in offensive situations. He's going to have to get nor- get into an organization that believes in that type of player but he he's one of the players who will definitely I think have value there for for a team like the Red Wings as a potential home run swing um but there's also a couple of defensemen that I think will fall there there's a number of sort of big uh, smooth skating defensemen in this draft that are going to go in the first round. Um, I, I think of a kid like Caden Gooley, who's an unbelievable skater, uh, but lacks some of those other qualities. And he, there's an arc, certainly an argument to be made for, for a kid like Caden to go in the first round. But I think when players like him go as, as high as he's likely to go, there are inevitably some sort of smaller defenders that, that begin to slip, um, that, that might have value. And, and the big one that I think of is, is a kid by the name of Emil Andre. Uh, who's five foot nine, but a lot like Marco Rossi is deceptively strong. Like he's a sturdy, sturdy five foot nine, uh, and he doesn't shy away physically and he can leverage his weight effectively in sort of man on man battles along the cycle and, uh, all of those things. But he's also got uh, a track record of making things happen offensively. Um, I think he's still got room to grow offensively in terms of the way that he sort of handles the puck up ice and makes plays in transition. And he, he can run a power play. And I think the big difference between, uh, for me often between a, a first round defenseman and uh, a sort of second or third round defenseman is can this kid not only be a top four defenseman, but can he also help out on special teams? And sometimes that means you, you give a little bit of a bump to a kid who's, who's going to be an excellent penalty killer, like a goalie who's got length and 
sort of excellent skating ability, and that's going to give him uh, tools in his arsenal that he, that can help a team even when he's not creating offensively. And then on the flip side, a kid like Andre, who I think can can potentially run an NHL power play someday. So Andre's a kid who in the early early second round, if he slips out of the first round, I think could have major value. And then another defenseman kind of in the same vein is Lucas Cormier, who's a kid I, I will fight tooth and nail for this in this class. He's just so, so good. And I think it, because there's a number of other high-end um, defensemen in the QMJHL this year, Lucas, in part because he was also injured for part of the year, has just kind of been forgotten about, at least in the public sphere. It will be interesting to see where he lands in terms of the private sphere with the scouting world. But he's a kid who's not the biggest kid in the world, and I just expect will will probably fall into the second round despite having clear first round talent and being an excellent defender for his size. I think a lot of teams are still running into the problem where they look, I mean, look no further than Quinn Hughes falling further than he should, but they look at these five foot nine, five foot ten defensemen these days and they say, this kid may have all of the offensive gifts in the world, but will he be able to defend? And I think you, you can often ignore when you're, when you tunnel vision in that kind of a way that some of these five foot nine, five foot ten defenders are actually pretty responsible in their own zone and can hold their own. And certainly there are kids who aren't and they get exposed for their size, but players like Andre and Cormier are actually pretty polished defensively. So, um, those are two defenders that I would, that I would look to uh, along with some of those other forwards, um, that I touched on, like a Simon Tybo and an Ibeck who are likely to fall as well. Last little thing before we let you go, uh, on a similar, well, I guess it's not quite a similar note. It's, it's looking down the road a little bit. And so if you don't have, uh, a strong opinion on this yet, I understand. But, um, you know, as, as we're talking about some defensemen, that is an area that the Red Wings still do need some beefing up in their farm system, as is every area. Uh, and I understand that the top of next year's draft is pretty defense heavy. Is that accurate? Yes. There's, there's probably four or five kids that will contend for the top 10. So, would it be fair to say that, like, the, I mean, I guess you're gonna draft for, for best available in an ideal world anyway, but, like, the, the, the comfort level that you can take in maybe pushing a little heavier on forwards this year and what looks like a, a draft that has a lot of really strong forwards in it, you can take a little comfort if you're the Red Wings in knowing that you're gonna have a crack at one of those tier of defensemen next year. Yeah, uh, I wouldn't say that's, uh, I mean, I tend to be the kind of guy who, who harps on BPA, BPA, BPA all the time, but one of the interesting things about this draft is that it's going to be pretty unlikely at just about, once Jamie Drysdale's gone, BPA is normally going to be a, a forward. Like, I think the teams that take these top defensemen um, are, are going to be going out of their way because they want a defenseman. Like if you're, if you're taking a Jake Sanderson instead of taking one of those top forwards that I talked about, or if you're taking a Caden Gooley or a Braden Schneider, who are good, good players. I mean, Caden's one of those kids who I think has taken too much of a knock in the public sphere because the data doesn't reflect and, and his production doesn't reflect a first round defenseman, but because of his skating, and his length, he's, he's, he's going to make a case for himself at the NHL level to be really good. Um, but I do think that because this draft is so thin on defensemen and because there's probably only a handful of defensemen that should be taken in the first round, even though we know that upwards of a dozen or at least right. 10 will probably be taken in the first round, inevitably there's just going to be some darn good forwards that fall into, in this draft. And I think in five, 10 years from now, when we look back at this draft, you're going to say, how did forward X end up going in the second or third round? And and the big reason for that will be because I think some mistakes are going to be made on some on taking some defensemen too high. 
Yeah. Awesome. Awesome, Scott. Well, thank you so much for, for stopping by and taking the time today. It was great to have you on and we will all be looking forward to, to your draft rankings. Uh, stay safe and take care. Yeah. Cheers. Stay safe, guys. All right. That's going to do it for us. Uh, sorry, we're going to run out of time for questions today, but we'll be back at it uh, early next week on Monday. So get your questions ready for then. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back at you soon. Mm-hmm.